0: uh, so that there's no confusion at all about what is about to transpire for the next 45 minutes and to give you a warning so that uh, if you're one of those old poops who, uh, you know, all the world is so filled with these uh, walking around doorknobs who don't really think anything. uh, The next 45 minutes is going to be about the mix. I just might as well tell you that. So, you know, you don't have to hang around if you're one of them old poofs. And you prefer to, you know, sit around and poof, which is what old fools do. Would you please? Oh, boy. You know, I'm always continually amazed and a little bit saddened at the number of people who really are congenital wet blankets. Congenital. And, and therefore, miss out on about 90% of what life has to offer I uh, mean, you know, the congenital I don't dig nothingers. <laughs> oh, poor people. Sad people. Oh, and then there's the other type who enjoys a very few things, and they're usually very esoteric, like uh, Scarlatti sonatas. And they are firmly convinced that the thing they enjoy is the only thing in the world that is worth enjoying. And all the others. You know the people that dig say, "Ron Swoboda, are obviously living in stygian outer darkness, and are worse than cockroaches, and should not be allowed to eat." <laughs> oh, those poor fools. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I want to tell you, I I don't know, you know, what to say about this. Uh, there's so much to say about it. And I'm going to give my own personal impressions of this whole thing. And it's going down, you know, I feel my my, uh, my responsibility as an artist is to record the vast and uh, sometimes uh, totally unexpected events of our times and actions of our day. <laughs> and uh, at a ball club that came from 100 to 1, and I mean they were 100 to 1 shots in the beginning of this season, and uh, for good reason, uh... To win the World Championship is is a thing that not many people, even if you're not even interested in it. I will tell you this: you will not see this again in your lifetime. Now, I didn't say that you won't see the Mets win a championship again in your lifetime. I said you will not see a 100 to 1 team win the World Championship again in your lifetime. Believe me, the Mets will not be 100 to 1 next April. I can assure you. <laughs> And uh, nevertheless, this is, this is one of those things that happens so rarely in the world of sports, and in fact, in the world of anything. A hundred to one shot hardly ever wins in any field. And I'm talking about in your office, I'm talking about in any situation that involves competition between human beings, turtles, and thoroughbred horses, that a hundred to one shots are exceedingly rare. And as a matter of fact, in professional sport, where 100-to-1 is being kind to the teams that are 100-to-1, in professional sport, it's a, it's a, it's not only rare, it is almost an impossibility. And the Mets did it. And they did it magnificently. There was no luck involved. You know, a lot of people say, luck, no, no. And it's just too much great play that went on to be luck. Now, I, I, uh, 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 the things that I want to say about, it, of course, uh, are uh, very personal. I was at the first Mets game that was ever played by the Mets. That's right. So you're looking at a charter member, and uh, I was, I was a Mets fan before the first banner appeared. You know, they didn't even have banners in those days. And you know, I've met so many people who actually believe that Ron Swoboda is one of the original Mets. And uh, I've met people who believe the Crane Pool is. and uh, But, uh, you know, that's all history. And what is the new history, of course, is the fact that the Mets have won a pennant. Now, uh, you know, there's a, there's a team wins the world championship every year. But no team, in my memory, ever, has ever won the championship the way the Mets have won it. I mean, coming from last place to win the world Championship. Now, the Boston Red Sox almost pulled it off two years ago. They were last place, you know, or at least very close to last place in the American League, and they made it to the World Series, but they did not make it all the way. They did not win that world title. As you recall, the St. Louis Cardinals beat them in the final in the final uh, series. But to win the World Series this way, I mean, it's a fantastic scene. Now... I was, I'm going to, one thing thing I want to say to you here at this point is I'm not just going to be sitting around talking about how groovy the Mets were, but uh, I I viewed it from a very different viewpoint. In the two pivotal games, in fact, in three of the pivotal games, I heard them in cities other than New York, or saw them on television. Uh, One of the games uh, that the Mets won in the world, in their playoff against the Atlanta Braves, I was in Montreal uh, on that day, and it was the deciding day, as a matter of fact. And the Mets, of course, uh, were great favorites up in Montreal because there's there's a tremendous rapport between Montreal and New York vis-a-vis the Mets because the new Mets that are growing in the National League are the Expos. They have the same kind of fanatical fans and they're the same kind of hopeless, wildly colorful ball club. They're extremely colorful, you say, Coca Cola Boy and a whole crab, and uh, of course when the, when the naturally the Expos were out of the uh, pennant race, the second day they took the field. Well, There's never been any any doubt about the Expos and the pennant. But then suddenly in in Montreal they switched over to the Mets because they kind of identify with the Mets, and uh, it was a it was a, you know the great moment when the Mets won the National League uh, playoff. By the way. Uh, I, uh, the people that I feel sorry for, really, in a lot of ways, are the uh, Baltimore Orioles. Not because they lost so much. Because, you know, they're pros. Uh, they, they, you win some, you lose some. And they're a great ball club. Don't you forget it. Probably next year they'll see a the championship. However, why I, I, I say I feel sorry for them is because I didn't run into a Baltimore fan any anyplace. I, 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 there were no Baltimore fans. The Mets were such a, uh, a, a nationwide favorite, they were—they were, they had become such a mania in the country, that Baltimore was kind of looked upon as the bad guys. And I will I you this, that had Baltimore beaten the Mets, they'd have been the most hated team in baseball. Not applauded, but hated. <laughs> and so they must be very lonely people. I, I suspect even in Baltimore they were rooting secretly for the Mets because... You know, the Orioles had won a couple of world titles before. But along comes this crowd, and it was just like total magic. And, and you know, when you... Uh, I, I just came back tonight from uh, Los Angeles, and I had a rare, very interesting... To me, uh, it was almost a... Well, it was a unique experience. I was in a United Airlines plane from Los Angeles directly over Shea Stadium when the last out was made I was right over Shea Stadium and of course they were piping the game in uh, giving it to us uh, every couple of, yeah well they were bringing it in you see they had it tuned in in the front in the cockpit and uh, they were bringing it back once in a while uh, they were they were just bringing little flashes all the way through the game and of course in the last the last uh, inning of the last couple of minutes of the game they were broadcasting it directly through the intercom system, and uh, and the, the pilot, uh, of course, we were, we were sweeping in. We hit the coast at Red Bank, New Jersey, which is where they hit the coast um, on, the, on the transcontinental flight coming this way, and he turned up the coast, and we were directly over, flushing right over the Old World's Fairground when the last out was made, and it was a fantastic sight. I was on the left side of the plane looking directly down at Shea Stadium, And you could see this big circle of arc lights, and and you saw this fantastic crowd there. And, of course, uh, at that altitude, we were about, oh, maybe 2,500, 3,000 feet, something like that. You couldn't pick out individuals, and then suddenly, because we heard the out, suddenly you saw this fantastic eruption. It was like a gigantic boil, like something just, boom. it was like Vesuvius. And you saw this crowd roar out, and I could see... Of course, it was, it was all so fast that I, I couldn't quite make out any individual players. I think I just saw a lot of white going on there. Then this great crowd swarmed in, and it was just fantastic. And all around, you could see for, for miles around, you could see the cars. You could see all the lights flashing. Guys were flashing their lights. And I glanced back over at Manhattan, and you know, from that angle... You could see the paper drifting out of the big buildings down on Wall Street. You saw this great cloud of paper. The people were all talking about it. In the plane—it was a wild moment, really—and uh, it was just a, the only other time that I've ever seen anything remotely like that was the time I was in the helicopter when Glenn, the uh, astronaut, uh, came in and moved on through the uh, through the uh, Wall Street parade and all that business. And I saw that from the air. But this was this was more peculiar because it was spontaneous. And it was directed at one spot. You could see these blue lights. And wow, a fantastic moment. And, uh, I was, you know, it was one of those lucky things. Now, the, the, uh, to, to talk about the specifics of this game and about the game's passing through, as a, as a veteran baseball observer, I've probably seen, uh, uh, you know, if I had uh, a buck for every game that I've seen in my life and, and or played in and as an ex-professional player, I've seen a lot of baseball, but I don't think in my life, and, I, and I'm sure, and in fact, several of the Baltimore Orioles players said it yesterday, uh, I've never seen anything like the peculiarly, almost supernaturally inspired play, particularly in the outfield. Never seen anything like this. You'll see once in a while in a series, you'll see a great play. In fact, if you go out to any given series, I don't mean a, a World Series, uh, let's say the Washington Senators come to, the, to uh, Yankee Stadium and play four games against the, the, the Yankees. Well, if you watch all four games, you're going to see one or two really good catches in the outfield. And to me, that's the most exciting play in baseball, is a great play in the outfield, because uh, there's so much hanging on it. When a ball is hit to an outfielder, that's trouble right there. Because if, he, if, he if there's an error in the outfield, it's disaster. If an infielder quite often has an error, the ball may roll three or four feet away from him, and the runner's safe at first. But in general, when an outfielder makes an error, that ball gets past him, and uh, it's double, triple, it's three runs in, it's bad news. And uh, it's also, and this is something that, uh, that an, only a ball player can tell, can say, that when there is an error in the outfield, this is one of the most uh, destructive, morale-wise, incidents that can happen on a, ball, on a ball field in a tight game. That's why a few years ago, when the Dodgers center fielder uh, made three errors in one inning, the, the, the Dodgers were thrilled because a, a, an outfield error, and, and uh, there's a lot of ways to describe it, but an outfield error looks so much like an error. It's such a disastrous error. But usually it's uh, it's, it's, it's uh, bad news all the way. But uh, anyway, what I would like to say is this, that uh, I've seen great plays in the outfield, and I was sitting in a, in a hotel room. I went out to, uh, to do the Steve Allen show, and I did two shows out there. And uh, I arrived, and I was a little bugged because I, wasn't, I thought I wasn't going to get a chance to see the games. And uh, here it is, you know, the Mets are in the World Series, and they're playing out at Shea, and where am I? I'm sitting in a hotel, you know, on Hollywood Boulevard. And so, uh, naturally, they're, they're showing the, the games out there. Well, you know, the time difference, it makes a great difference out there. It's the first time I ever saw a World Series game at 10 in the morning. And, uh, yeah, it's really early in the morning, see? And I had been, the night before, I had uh, I had gotten into town very late, and uh, I went up to my hotel room, and so I, I made sure that I was going to see this World Series game, and I and I checked to see whether the TV set worked in the, in the room. I thought I was kind of a TV nut, and... Uh, he was, uh, you know, and he padded out. And I tried to set, sure enough. And so that morning at 10 o'clock, I watched the Mets from this hotel room overlooking Los Angeles. I was up on the 15th floor. You see L.A. out there. Seems like you get a strange pr- perspective because uh, here I am. I'm a, all the way on the other side of the continent. I'm, I'm truly in the enemy territory. Speaking of, uh, now, can I get technical a little bit with you here? Now, you... I think, and, and I don't care what the sports writers say, you are witness to one of those rarities. You are witness, and our are going to be given all the credit and have them for the series. But I tell you this, as an ex-ball player and as an observer of the scene, you are looking at a series that was, in, in very real terms, could very well have been won by magnificent fielding. That, uh, that a couple of catches... One way or the other, in those outfielders—you would have, you'd have seen some pitchers taking early showers, friends. <laughs> and and uh, we we rarely, you know, in this in this uh, in this town particularly, we rarely get fielding its due. Uh, we were much more interested in batters. That's a big thing. Batting is, is very big in New York. Maybe it's because Babe Ruth played here and set the whole tenor of the way people think about baseball. Babe Ruth and and Mantle and Roger Maris. Fielding has never been talked much about in New York because they've had great sluggers. Uh, fielding and pitching are the two things that the New York fans and the sports writers constantly write about. Now, I disagree with what they've been saying about Svoboda. This past year, Svoboda has been an excellent fielding outfielder, has made some great plays in the outfield all year. And all of a sudden, it's very, it's very, uh, sheet now to talk about old iron gloves for making this unusual catch. Forget it, friends. He made us. He made at least a half dozen catches that were comparable to that catch during the year. Uh, Vorta's come a long way as an outfielder. Uh, and of course New York has, uh, has strange selective memories. It keeps confusing the current ball team with the Mets of 1963. Ain't the same thing, friends. <laughs> Not at all. Any more than the Yankees of 1969 are the Yankees of 1963. We don't make that confusion uh, with the Yankees, but nevertheless, uh, I was sitting up in my hotel room watching this ball game, the uh, the uh, yesterday's game, and uh, and play by play, I, I, I was I was just glued to the set because I have rarely seen such well played baseball. And I think one of the reasons why there is such a tremendous interest all of a sudden, and it's been developing all over the country in baseball, is that suddenly you see an explosion of excellence. This is really, when the game is well played, it is an exciting game. And uh, you saw some well played baseball on both sides, by the way. It was not just the Mets. The Orioles played some beautifully inspired ball, particularly in their infield. Their infield work was great during this series. Particularly the left side of the infield, Brooks Atkinson, Brooks, uh, excuse me, Brooks Robinson, and and Mark Belanger were beautiful in their slots. Now uh, we don't want to talk about the Orioles because it's not popular. However, uh, the two plays that Tommy Agee made. Now I'll, I'll tell you something about the technicalities of those two catches if you don't mind getting technical here for a minute. That uh, Agee's two catches that he made in that game, the, the yesterday's ball game. Was they, they were they would have to rate with with two of the great World Series catches with all with the all-time great catches made in the series. However, I might point that this out. This has been a regular thing with Agee. In fact, uh, I'm going to say something that no none of the sports writers uh, have said about Tommy Agee. Maybe it's because they don't follow the Chicago White Sox in this town. But he came up as a Sox, you know, a Chicago White Sox player a few years back. He was not always a Met. In fact, he was a a teammate of Al Weiss on the Chicago White Sox, in case you're interested. And when he came up, he was considered to be on a par and the equivalent of Willie Mays. Many scouts and critics of baseball players and uh, experts, and uh, particularly the people who put the money out for them, sign them up. He was one of the hottest prospects that the White Sox have had since the 1920s. He was considered to be on par with Willie Mays in the field as well as at the bat. Well, for one reason or another, Tommy Agee never did it with the Sox. He would have moments of brilliance with them where he was just a fantastic ball player. And then he would go into these periods of sort of ordinariness. And then he would have moments of brilliance. Now I'm talking about both at the bat and in the field. And uh, the White Sox strung along with him for years, and he'd go and that and come and go. And so one day they decided to trade him, and that was the, the trade that took uh, Tommy Davis from the Mets and brought Davis to the White Sox. Remember Davis when he was playing with the Mets? And, and in exchange for A. G. well, when and I think there were a couple of other players involved. Well, when Tommy A. G. came to the to the Mets. Maybe this is what he needed because over here in the, in the National League, nobody expected much of him, really. The fans didn't know A.G. here. They didn't know that A.G. had, had been hailed as another Willie Mays. He was just another ball player to the Met fans. And the, the Met fans, when he came up, were madly in love with uh, Ron Svoboda. They were madly in love with, at that time, I guess, or, or the Hunt, even, was still around. But nevertheless... Uh, he just sort of snuck in. Well, when he joined the club, I remember telling Lee, who uh, Lee Brown, who produces my show, I remember her telling him t- t- about him. I told her that Tommy A. J. could make the difference with the Mets. I said, if he comes through, and nobody knew. Well, of course, his first year, was uh, he was playing like he was with the White Sox, because it takes time to throw off the feeling that you're a loser. You're right, that's a tough thing. Well, this year he played the way A.G. has always been, and I think he's going to be a greater ball player in the, in the years to come. I think AG's a great ball player, potentially a superstar, really. And, uh, of course, he's, he's proven it in the outfield, fantastic outfield play. However, and uh, this will get some disagreement, watching those two great plays by A.G., I, didn't, I, I, I couldn't see how anybody could cut those plays. Well, the, the, uh, the play that... Uh, Ron Swoboda made on Brooks Robinson's sinking line drive to right center field. This is the single greatest outfield play I have ever witnessed. For a number of technical reasons, none of them have I seen stated in by any of the by any of the uh, sports writers. For one thing, both of Ag's catches were catches where the ball was up comparatively. I think one was a sinking uh, ball, which he, he was coming in towards. You remember that one play? But this is a very different play than to, to make a, a right-angle trajectory on a sinking, sliced line drive, which is exactly what Ron Svoboda did. This, this, uh, this ball was sinking fast. It was a sliced ball. Now, a sliced ball is not the same as a straight line drive. That meant that that, that ball was curving as it came down. Very difficult play. And furthermore, uh, a diving catch, any outfielder will tell you a diving catch is infinitely more of uh, a problem technically and, and much more of a, of a risk too than a, a catch which is made on your feet. Now, why, why is this so? Well, because if you're diving, forget physical, uh, let's say physical injury involved. If you're diving, obviously you're going to be on the ground when that ball goes by you, which means... To recover after that. It, 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 it's 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 a sure triple, if not a home run inside the park, that kind of a ball. Well, when he left his feet, I thought I thought I thought he was out of his mind. When he when he I could see him on the screen, when he left his feet I says, Oh no. Because in a situation like that, nine outfielders well, nine I would say ninety nine out of a hundred outfielders would have conceded that this is a hit. And they would have played it for a single. And they would have been lucky to hold that ball to a single. It would have taken a backhand stop out in that outfield to hold that ball to a single. It would have probably been a double. Well, when he left his feet, I said, oh, no, this is it. Well, when he caught that ball, it was one of the most... Well, it was like magic. It's like... It, and, I, and, I, and I have to agree with the, the Oriole players who said that. If he tra- One of the Oriole players, I recall, I don't recall which one it was, said this about it. He said that if... Uh, if uh, If Robota tries to make that play all next season, they're going to wind up in ninth place, meaning that that play is a dangerous play and that he pulled it off. It was a fantastic play. That's got to rate with one of the great outfield catches of all time, regardless of whether it was series or not. Now, when you're getting that kind of play uh, from the outfield, it's easy to look good on the mound. (laughs) I'll tell you that. that. That ball would have gone all the way to the wall for a triple and uh, who was it? Seaver was pitching that time. Mister Seaver would have liked looked like he did against the Atlanta Braves, uh, which uh, was a little shaky here and there. But uh, don't don't misunderstand me. I thought he pitched well in that game. But he was saved by some fantastic plays. Now, on the other, no, I thought it was Gentry pitching in that game. Was it Gentry? No, it was Seaver. But on the other hand, uh, all 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 when all was said and done, uh, I. Uh, when, when I when I landed and the plane came in, we, we landed shortly after the game was over. And, of course, uh, I took uh, took a cab in. I was coming in past Che. Of course, all the cars were pouring out. They were all going the other way, luckily. There were thousands of people. You could hear the lights and the horns honking. The closer we got to Manhattan, I'm sure that a lot of you have heard this story. I mean, those of you are out of town may not have heard all of it, though. Uh, this town, I've never seen this town like it, like it was at the time, right after... The, uh, you know, the, the game was over. Uh, I, I came in from the east side, of course, from the airport side. And the further in you got, the, the thicker the paper was. Until I was, we were on the, uh, I believe it was 39th Street, coming uh, going west. And uh, when we got up to 3rd Avenue and up, up, around, uh, up around Madison, the paper was actually hub deep across the street. It was uh, fantastic. I couldn't believe it. The cab driver was astounded. Well, I got out. I said, I want to walk. So I got out of the cab, and, of course, people were walking around. Everybody was streaming around the place. And then I heard this tremendous roar. You could hear it in the distance. It sounded like the ocean. And I, wa- I was walking across Park Avenue. I, well, let's see. I was walking yeah, near Park, between Park, Madison, and Park, the whole area, and I heard this great roar come out. And I saw the, the, the people running down, down the... You're just running uh, hell-bent for election towards... Grand Central and apparently they had brought the ball players. this is what I, uh, I don't know what the actual story was, or maybe the rumor was out that they had brought the Mets in a bus back or something and they were now back down around Grand Central because it was a fantastic roar. and I could see all the paper drifting down from the buildings on Fifth Avenue. It looked like one of these uh, you, know, the, you know the ticker type parade and there actually there actually was ticker tape. And and I saw a lot of strange, little, ironical things. People apparently were throwing everything they could get uh, out of the windows, and they were torn up. I saw a torn up Playboy that was the center fall out, all torn up. Chick was flying out all over the street, and, uh, <laughs> and, and you know some things are too pat, almost ironically pat. I saw somebody had torn up a poster of the of the three moon astronauts, and uh, maybe you know this is the only thing they could get. So they they threw this out the window, and here were pictures. There were pieces all over the sidewalk of the moon, and and you know it was so funny. Here was last month's hero, you see, and all of a sudden they're tearing that up because of this month's hero. And it was uh, it was one of those things which a bad short story writer would use in his short story. But I actually uh, I saw this. Well, the crowd was was uh, surging up and down, and uh, you know it was funny. Even even little old ladies, you could see that uh, they they even though obviously they didn't dig baseball because uh, uh, they were just that kind, you know. There's, uh, there's large groups of people who don't. But they were caught up by the infectiousness of the crowd, you know, the infectious uh, feeling of, uh, of uh, life and uh, release and everything else that was going on. Now, why this, you know, I think that this victory by the Mets was a lot, a lot more to New York than the, than the victory of a baseball team. And a lot of people are are going to fail to realize this. I know I'll get a lot of angry letters from old fools who say, ah, what is it, only a game, blah, blah, blah. Well, that means that you're a little bit out of it (laughs) and that that you're not really listening to the sound of the streets and uh, you're not really looking at things for what they are. That often a thing which seems to be very trivial has great significance above and beyond itself, the intrinsic thing that it is. And there has to be something in this mess thing. I suspect, because I've seen it across the country, uh, in Los Angeles, that's all they were talking about. Everywhere you went, that's all. Steve Allen, I was with Steve. We're, we're sitting in the background now. Allen, uh, here we are, about to go on. Now, I don't know whether you people know much about showbiz people. I mean, real uh, television showbiz people. These are the most insular, self-involved people. Now, I was sitting in a in the green room. We were about to record Ellen show, which was going to be seen all over the country. Usually the comics and the singers and the producers and all these people are very tense. They, they, they sit in this green room like, uh, like they're all on death row. It's uh, they, they are not funny people when they're off stage, you see. And uh, among the people who were there, let's see, uh, Gogi Grant was there, uh, uh, London Lee, you know the comic, yeah, that's what I think. And he was there, and uh, there were a couple of really great groovy. Uh, and by the way, of all the things, would you believe what they had there? What, what Steve had in the in the in the room there? It was the West Coast Champion Junior Girls Softball Team. And by the way, they are fantastic. You want to see them play? It's just incredible. Because they had films of them. They're really good, but beautiful girls. Little, they were all about 14, 13, and beautiful. That typical California beauty, it. wow! And they were all sitting. We're all sitting there watching highlights of the Mets game. You see, they they had it all. I had it on TV there in LA, and uh, nobody mentioned the show. And all the while, the audience, the audience that was about to see the show uh, that Steve was and then all of us were putting on, they were sitting out there like sheep, you know, waiting for the big moment. And everybody on the show was sitting there watching them play that. Ron Swoboda catch. They were playing it over and over in slow motion in, uh, in L.A. And uh, they had one of the Dodger outfielders, by the way. This is very interesting. They don't do these things like this in New York, which they should. They had a Dodger outfielder who was explaining uh, the play as it was going on. He was talking about this particular catch and, and the, the discussing other catches he had seen like this. And uh, it was a great, was a nice piece of film. But nevertheless, it was fascinating to see all these showbiz people for the first time pulled out of themselves. Now, the Mets wasn't the series or baseball. It was something about this 100-to-1 shot coming out of the blue. In fact, I, I also, the way the Mets... I, I suspect this is the first time in history that a high school baseball team won the world championship. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. These guys are more like a high school ball team than any other team I've ever seen. I'm not even talking about their age. I'm talking about the esprit de corps among people who are hard-bitten ball players. Don Clinton played an inspired series. And by the way, there's the one guy I think that made the difference in the Mets, above and beyond the ages. I think he was the guy coming with the Mets in the midseason that turned the trick. This was a fine ball player. And uh, did you notice? No matter what happened, no matter who was pitching, clandendon pulled one he was doing this for years with pittsburgh and he ain't stopped but uh, uh I, I another guy who i think played inspired ball and by the way he was considered one of, and, and and when he was winning in the american league was considered the finest fielding shortstop quite possibly within the past 15 to 20 years was al weiss or did you know that he had that reputation it's a fantastic guy. Uh, he, he played short and second base, both for the uh, for the Chicago White Sox. And he was considered to be one of the best glove men who ever got into the, you know, ever played the big leagues. And it looked like his career was over here about two years ago. And ironically enough, it occurred with a player that they defeated in the World Series. Uh, he was playing with the White Sox, and on a double play around second base, he and Frank Robinson collided. And it put both of them out for... Uh Al, Al uh, I think he had badly broken, uh, torn ligaments, and his leg was badly wrecked. It was his knee, I believe. And it looked like he would never play again, or at least if he did, he wouldn't be, uh, he wouldn't be the old Weiss. And uh, Robinson was so badly injured in that that for over almost two years, he had double vision. And it looked like uh, his career was almost at an end, too. But uh, Al Weiss, I thought, now here's an example. You see, this happens. He's a professional. And the the big difference between uh, uh, professionals, and I suspect that the amateur world, is that a professional will get better under pressure. Not worse, but better. Quite often an amateur or uh, a rookie will do the opposite. And uh, Hodges was wise in going with Weiss. As you see, Uh, Weiss played uh, uh, an inspired series. Well, what did he hit? He hit about 600 in the series, including a home run in the last ballgame. You know that he only hit two home runs in the whole season. And so uh, Weiss building a home run during the series, and, and he was consistently hitting. This is a professional ball player doing what he does best and doing it at his best in a series. So uh, all these subtleties when you, when you, when you know this game. Uh, talk about pros. Uh, it was interesting to see uh, how they... Uh, when, you, when you talk to one guy, I think, that was not given and has not been given the credit... I thought that Jerry Grody caught a magnificent series. Uh, a catcher is, is, uh, is, is an unsung guy, unless he's a Yogi Berra, uh, Yogi Berra or, a, uh, or uh, somebody like uh, Roy Campanella, who's colorful as a person. But in general, catchers are not, uh, nobody pays much attention to a catcher. He's never given credit for victories. Uh, usually, a ca- And his work is hard and, and unrelenting. Uh, I, I uh, incidentally speaking, catchers. Uh, Joe Garagiola is an old friend of mine, and he was an excellent catcher, in spite of all of his funnies. to the contrary. He was an excellent catcher, and uh, Garagiola will be the first to tell you that you know that, that a catcher's life in the big lakes has to be just a little bit this of uh, one of the uh, less desirable salt mines in Siberia. This is a tough, hard, rough business, and I thought that Grody handled these catchers beautifully in this. Uh, Handle these ca- pitchers, excuse me, handle the pitchers beautifully in this series. Now, uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, for those of you who aren't baseball fans, most of this is probably bugging you. <laughs> but, uh, but there's a lot of things about. It. Now, one more thing, and, and I, I must go on record. Is, uh, I don't understand. I suspect that most of the ballplayers, most of the people who write baseball in New York, never played the game. If they did, they probably played softball in the backyard, that kind of thing. But the play. That uh, Pete Rickard, you know the play uh, when he came in as a relief pitcher in the tenth inning and uh, hit J.C. Martin with that throw to first. I would have been personally. I saw that play. I, I watched that, and I from the minute Martin laid that play uh, laid that bunt down, I personally thought it was a hit. It was a beautifully placed bunt. Uh, not many people are talking about. It. This is one of the most difficult plays that a pitcher has to make. Now, what it involved was this. Uh, had that ball been bunted directly in front of the plate, it would have been a much simpler play, simply because the angle of, of throw to first base would have been very different. But as it was, that ball was laid down on the first base side of home, a short, chopping bunt. This is what they used to call a Baltimore chop. It's a short, chopping bunt. Very difficult play to, to, uh, to play because the ball has got a, a bad spin on it, And a tricky hop. Well, the catcher came charging out towards it. If you saw the play, you noticed the pitcher came charging in, too. Well, the ball was a little bit too far for the catcher to play. It was not far enough for the pitcher to play it comfortably. So the pitcher, who was charging towards the plate, had to pick that ball up and then fire. In other words, he had to make a 180-degree turn, almost 180 degree, to get that ball to first base. And, And he had to throw it. Right down the first baseline, he was almost on a line with Martin. That would have been a very, very good play, and uh, and as it was, uh, he had the bad luck that it picked Martin's wrist, and that was the ball game. And uh, I thought, and by the way, there were three guys on the Mets team who were who were ball players on the same team, and they they they, they played they played uh, in the in the uh, probably the saddest ballpark in all of the major leagues. And before the most apathetic crowds in the majors, J.C. Martin, Tommy Agee, and Al Weiss—those three guys probably never believed ever that they would play on a World Series ball team. And uh, all three of them are are uh, are well up in, in years as ball players go. And uh, this this was really their last chance, particularly Weiss. Uh, the other one, of course, was Ed Charles. There's been a lot of writing about Charles here. But there's been a lot of reasons why they write about Charles. And he's a fine ball player, very colorful. But I suspect those four guys, possibly with the addition of a fifth, in fact, I must say yes with the addition of a fifth, there were five guys who were enjoying the night of victory far more than any of the other Mets. And they will not be as celebrated as the others they're not going to be carried around like Seaver on people's shoulders and Coosman. Probably a lot of people are more about Seaver's wife than they are about poor old Clendenin, which shows you what's going on in New York. <laughs> but nevertheless, I would say that the five players that we would like to say, uh, you know, hail and have a good winter to are Don Clendenin, Ed Charles, Tommy Agee, Al Weiss, and J.C. Martin. And Martin coming in to pinch hit He said, all I wanted to do was to just get in once in one World Series game. He said, I never thought I would make it. And so he got in, he got his little bunt, and he was the hero. So those five players, wearing their... By the way, you know, all players now get a World Series ring, which they will keep all of their life. It's a ring that says, and it's given to them by the baseball commissioner's office, that says that they won, played in, and won, and were the member of a team that won the World Championship. The other club, they also get a World Series ring, but it's a different color. It says that they played on a team that won the championship of its league, and it played in the series. But uh, I, I remember one time, one of the saddest stories I ever heard was about an ex-ball player's ring, his World Series winning ring, winding up in a, in a pawn shop in Cincinnati. You know, sick transit, well, sick glory transit.